Do you want to maximize your success with NCUA? Join Mark Trichel as he shares with you the insider's view on passing your exam with Flying Colors. The With Flying Colors podcast is sponsored by Credit Union Exam Solutions by Mark Trichel. If you would like to work directly with the Credit Union Exam Solutions team and receive support to optimize your results with NCUA so you save time and money, visit us at marktrichel.com to find out more. Hey everyone, this is Mark Treichel with another episode of With Flying Colors. I'm excited today to have Josh Herman with me. Josh, how are you doing today? Good, good. Great to be here, Mark. Thanks for having me. You got it. Well, and I've known Josh quite a while. He's got a great resume that I'm going to rattle off here. So Josh is a director on the Digital Asset Advisory Services team at SRM, also known as Strategic Resource Management an independent firm that helps financial institutions identify cost savings and new revenue potential. He's an expert in risk management and strategy, and Josh's central role at SRM is as a digital asset risk and revenue enhancement strategist for financial institutions. I met Josh first at NCUA, uh, where he was a principal examiner and received several awards, some of which he received from me, including a rookie of the year. He previously served as vice president of strategy at Frankenmuth Credit Union, where he was chair of the risk committee and oversaw risk identification, risk mitigation, and strategy efforts of the credit union. During his time at Frankenmuth Credit Union, he also developed and created a leading cannabis banking program called Envy. Now, before that, he was previously a VP of compliance at Comerica Bank and a senior associate at Doran Mayhew. He has been featured as a guest author for various industry media outlets discussing his unique perspective on risk in the financial industry. Josh, that's a fantastic summary. You've done a lot in a short period of time. Very impressive. Thank you. And again, thanks for having me. And as you said, that Rookie of the Year Award, you actually gave me, and it gave me a lot of confidence. I was a second-year examiner in 2011, when I got that award from you. And I'll never forget, and I tell this story, that I got up from my computer for five minutes, walked away, came back, and I had an email from Mark Trichel, regional director of NCUA, that said, call me, period. (laughs) And I go, what in the world did I do? But no, it was fantastic to have that phone call with you, fantastic to get that award. And like I said, it gave me a lot of confidence as a second examiner. Maybe I was onto something there. So it's great to be on this podcast with you. Thank you for your service at NCUA as well. You, you led the agency very well. Yeah, Josh, I appreciate that. And I remember when I came up with the idea to do that Rookie of the Year within Region 1, that was my favorite day of the year because you get into the grind of doing everything you've got to do, You know, dealing with credit unions, dealing with staff, dealing with HR. But that time of the year where you can say, okay, you can reflect back on the year and reward people for good actions. It was always fun to have those phone calls and surprise people with the cryptic message that led to them getting a little bit of a cash award. And more important than the cash award is the recognition and the empowerment to that people are recognizing that you're doing well. And you've just continued parlaying that into different opportunities. Two of the things I'd like to talk to you about today are cannabis banking and the Envy program that you started, and then also digital assets as well. So I think we'll start with cannabis banking or cannabis credit union, Inc. There you go. So why don't you tell me a little bit about the journey that you've had into cannabis banking? Yeah, and I'll start with, I like rephrasing that, taking the banking out of that. I always feel weird saying 
banking. I mean, that's the act, but credit unions do things differently. And especially on the cannabis banking side of things. But so when I, when I joined Franken with credit union, becoming known as the weed banker was definitely not in my immediate plans. As you mentioned, I came from NCUA, I came from Dorn Mayhew, both positions of evaluating risk and somewhat of checking boxes and, and ensuring compliance and not really promoting or taking excessive risk. And I viewed cannabis banking as excessive risk at the time. And so it, it was definitely not in my immediate plans, but at a very high level, there's really two different types of credit unions in the banking space. And so there's the yeses and there's the noes. Most are no, meaning they don't have a program and therefore they don't accept any businesses or individuals associated in any way with the industry. This even goes down to employees on a state level. So a state legal business that's fully licensed, if you're just an employee that collects a paycheck, there's many financial institutions that will, I mean, for lack of a better term, kick you out of their institution because you're associated with the industry. There's no's and then there's yeses. And the yeses develop a program. That's a very high level comparison because even on the yes side of things, there's a wide variety of services. And so some will just be a, a checking account and some will be a, a full array of services and fully developed product suite. But the first part is saying yes. So Steve, take it even for context. The way that cannabis works in Michigan is that it is state legal. And I know it's not the case for all 50 states yet, but there's definitely some progress being made there, both for adult use and for medicinal purposes. And there's a licensing process that businesses have to go through. And it's extremely strict and extremely regulatory and regulation driven from the top within the state of Michigan. But even though it's state legal, communities have to opt in to allowing these businesses and so, for example, there's townships and cities around me that did not opt in, and there's some that did opt in. You can usually tell the ones that did opt in because there will be more than one dispensary, more than one grow facility. You can tell the ones that didn't because there's obviously an absence there. And so going to Frankenmuth, once all of this got kicked off a little bit with communities opting in, we quickly saw that communities that surrounded Frankenmuth's footprint were opting in. And Frankenmuth's CEO, Vicki Schmitzer, she's been there 40-something years. I think she was employee three at the credit union. Fantastic leader, fantastic CEO. She came to me and said, we need to figure out a way to say yes to these businesses. We exist for our membership. And so we need to make sure that it's compliant, but we need to make sure that we're serving our membership. And we need to figure out a way to stop saying no to our members because it's only going to grow. So it took a little while to get to the point of me saying yes. But that's what we did. And at the end of the day, there's definitely Vicky and the credit union making a conscious decision to say, we're going to serve our membership here and figure out how to serve our members. Well, it's interesting. Thanks for that. It's interesting that, so my 34 years at NCUA started as an examiner, as an executive. And during that journey, I went from being risk averse to being much more comfortable with risk, right? And it sounds like that's kind of the journey you went through from your early days at Dorn Mayhew and NCUA, and now you're going, okay, well, there's all these rules. How do we get to yes, where you're in charge of making sure that you're compliant, yet you want to be able to serve those members? And your history at NCUA, your five years at NCUA, did that help you? And how might it have shaped what you first learned and what you were comfortable with in cannabis banking? Yeah, and that's really good insight because you understand that process of going from the examiner to the risk measure to the risk taker. And it's something that I get questioned on a lot is how in the world do you go from NCUA examiner to building a cannabis banking program? The two don't seem to go together. 
But there's something really interesting. I think the current NCAA board really understands this too, that regulations aren't necessarily prohibitive. They're more prescriptive. I mean, to stay within these boundaries and build a program that you need to build to serve your membership. And so my time as an NCAA examiner, whether it was reading regulations, guidance, both on the federal level and on the state side of things, um, in Michigan, it's diffs. And so I got very familiar with, with reading state documents, which are different than the federal documents. But I also became familiar with exactly what you mentioned, which is seeing the big picture of risk. And so with cannabis banking, that was identifying what the real risks actually were. I think a lot of times, at least for me, looking at something that I'm unfamiliar with, it seems really complex and that complexity makes it seem really risky. But I think the more for me, when I dive into something, it becomes less complex and you can kind of pull it apart a little bit and you can really find out where the risks are. And so NCUA in my time as an auditor really helped that. So once we pull apart what cannabis banking is for a credit union, what the industry looks like, we can identify what the risks are. And now with those prescriptive regulations and guidance out there, we can really build a program that stays within those rails and also serve our membership at the same time. So I think being an NCOA examiner, even though it seems like a paradox type situation, I think it actually helps build a compliant program. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. So talking risk, talking challenges, what would you say the primary challenges credit unions are facing when they want to provide services to the cannabis industry? Yeah, the first one, and I forget about this, is the stigma still. After being in the space for two plus years now, I forget that there's a stigma out there that exists about the industry. But I would say that's the number one hurdle. And the number one fear of credit unions entering the space is not compliance risk. It's not AML, BSA. It's what's our membership going to think if we enter into this space? And I can tell you from experience, that was a concern that we had. What's our membership going to think? I mean, 30 plus branches, 60,000 plus members. All it takes is a couple complaining members on social media or something for you get a bad reputation. But what we actually found out was the industry is very professional. The ones that you want to bank with you are very professional. They're very compliant. They're held to a lot of regulations. And so they want to stay compliant. And so they're not going to walk into your branch and you're not going to have any issues. And I stayed very close with the front lines at the branches that we had opened and said, hey, are we having any issues? What's going on here? And the biggest concern was, is the cash going to smell, right? I and mean, that's what everyone wants to know is, is the cash going to smell? Right. I, think, right. I think once you understand the process of the way it works, typically there's an ATM, you go get your money out of the ATM, you go up to the register, you purchase whatever you're purchasing at the dispensary, the cash then goes into a safe, the owner takes the money from the safe and takes the institution. There's not even a whole lot of exposure for the smell to be there, but what I heard from the front lines was, no, we're having no issues with these members, but because it's legal in our communities, our normal membership is actually smelling more, more than the businesses are. So we go, okay, we don't have a problem. <laughs> we don't have a reputation problem here. That's we're funny. Doing, we're doing exactly what we set out to do, which, which was serve our memberships. So the first was the stigma. Second is never getting educated on the topic. I mean, so once you get over the stigma, you say, okay, we're going to serve this business. It's very important to get educated on a topic because you find out that you're going to build a program that might not meet the needs of your membership. And so educating yourself on the industry and what your local businesses actually need. And then third, and I think this is a big one, is entering the space scared. <laughs> and so you get over the stigma, you get educated on the topic, and you still kind of hand out your membership form with your hand shaking a little bit, right? Like, please don't sign this paper. We're offering it, but, but we're a little scared to enter the space. And kind of what I said before, these businesses want to stay compliant. They are held to more regulations, at least in Michigan, than perhaps any other 
business industry in the state. And so to have an issue with one of these would be an outlier. But when the credit union approaches this with a scared mindset, you kind of end up treating these businesses like a criminal, (laughs) which is not what you want to do. And we've found that we got a lot of comments and we didn't get comments about how great our fees were. We didn't get comments about our product offering, which our fees were low. Our product offering was great. We got the most heartfelt emails from our membership saying we felt like we were normal when we walked into one of your branches. We felt like we didn't have to hide what we were doing. And again, starting from the top, that was the goal from the CEO, Vicky, and it actually permeated all the way through to the front lines that these businesses could finally go someplace where they could just be a state legal business. So there's a few things, a few hurdles that credit unions need to get through, but I think it's becoming easier to get through those. Well, that's interesting. And that probably that fear part, entering the space scared, relates to the AML, the BSA Mm -hmm. side of not wanting to violate that and know your customer and all that. So from the beginning of the journey through the end of the journey, and maybe even from thinking back to your NCOA time, I think that was at the Cole memo that was kind of drove drove a lot. And I read it back in the day, and I don't really do much in it now, but I always kind of remember that as, as something that NCOA looked at back then. And it's easier now from a regulatory landscape. Have you seen the regulatory landscape evolve? And then what considerations should credit union keep in mind when navigating that space, even though the regulations used to be a little bit more aggressive because it was new and we don't have, like you said, we don't have, it's not legal everywhere. Hopefully eventually the feds will come to their senses and make it legal so everybody can bank everywhere and everybody can kind of be treated as normal, right? But what have you seen relative to the landscape in this whole arena? Yeah, on the federal side, I've seen a lot of promises and a lot of high hopes for years. And it seems like we do the roller coaster a few times every year with nothing really happening. And so promises of of a Safe Banking Act going through or promises of of sections of the Safe Banking Act going through. Because really the problem on the banking side of things for a financial institution, the, the problem is it's federally illegal. And so if you take funds from something that's federally illegal, you're essentially money laundering. And so there is that mindset of, and we had an attorney say it to us, there's money laundering and then there's illegal money laundering. And I'd never heard that. Leave it to an attorney to say that. Yeah, um, but leave I, it to the I, attorneys. Yeah. Yeah. I like the way that he said that, though, because I think there does have to be an understanding of that's essentially what FIs are doing here because of the way that marijuana and, and cannabis is still scheduled. But because of that, number one, there's not every financial institution is in the space. But number two, Visa and MasterCard are sitting on the sideline here. And so not only can you not offer merchant services and, and things like that through MasterCard and Visa, but your membership can also not go to these establishments and use their Visa, MasterCard, branded card. And so there are alternatives in the space for payments that isn't necessarily cash intensive, but for the most part, there is still more cash in these businesses than your average business, your average retail establishment out there. So there is a big need for legal banking services that everyone can have access to. So that's on the federal side. On the state side, I know every state is different, but things have been great in Michigan. I know other states, it's not going as great. In other cities, it's not going as great. But we've seen states adopt and continue to adopt. But we have a kind of an interesting situation here. So states tax these businesses. The federal government taxes these businesses. And so I can only assume that the state and federal governments are making the most money off of this than, than anybody. And so From my perspective, and I'm not in the government, my perspective, there's not a whole lot of motivation 
to change anything when you're getting a lot of funding coming from this right now. So on the federal side, we're on that roller coaster right now where there's promises and hints that something's going to pass. State side is perfectly fine, but it is as long as you're in a state where it's legal. My personal opinion is that other than needing Visa MasterCard to get on board and things like that, if you're a credit union sitting on the sideline, you don't need to wait for that federal clearance to get in on it because NCUA is going in and examining federal credit unions, not even state chair, but federal credit unions and not giving them a prohibition on doing it because it's federally legal. And on the state side, obviously it's going to be state legal. So we're on the roller coaster on the federal side right now, but I would not let it prohibit or inhibit a credit union if they want to get in. So in that regard, so setting aside the resolution we need on the federal rules, can you highlight some key operational and compliance issues or factors that credit unions should consider when they're considering serving these cannabis businesses? Yeah, I've talked to various credit unions over the years, even as at Franklin with about cannabis banking, and typically these programs want to be built in a silo. And so whether it's a separate name or whether it's own vertical within the credit union, there's a desire to have it be separate. And, and I think that's fine. I, th- I think there's pros and cons to that approach. I would just say, make sure to include the necessary departments in that vertical. I've seen them built up and then you forget accounting or you forget integrating with your core or something like that. A, a major piece that once you start onboarding accounts, it becomes a big issue. Second, and you touched on this, compliance is key. Understanding the issues and potential issues and red flags and the flow of funds and business structures is very key in running a successful program. And there has to be an acceptance of these business structures. These businesses are used to operating under the radar. And so we see some of these business structures that the web is tough to unwind, but you have to put in the effort to unwind that and make sure that they have, as long as everything's on the up and up, that they have a place to go and bank. And just because it looks different than what your normal businesses look like, it's not a reason to turn them away. So we spent, as I frankly, we spent hours trying to unweave some of these business structures just because that's the way they've had to operate under the radar. But ensuring compliance with all of that is ultimately key. And then trust your gut. I mean, if something doesn't feel right, you still have the prerogative to say, we're not comfortable with this, so we're not going to do it. No, that's great advice. So yeah, on the silo thing, there's a book I refer to a lot on my podcast here called The Wisdom of Crowds. And you need to get the wisdom from all the departments. I actually was talking about enterprise risk management and the importance of enterprise risk management as it deals with different risks. But if you leave somebody out that can contribute to make what you want to keep in that silo better, there's just things, everybody has blind spots. And if you do it in a silo, I think I would recommend to be inclusive when you're looking at that. So I can see where where they might want to do that, but that's an interesting thought. So success stories or examples of credit unions that have, have effectively navigated this process. Can you share some success stories and what contributed to that success? Yeah, I mean, so I can talk about some who have gotten into the space. I mean, I'm not going to give any names no, on, on, on that side of it, but who have gotten into it. And I think... They either wanted income or they they wanted some financial gain from it. I'm not saying a financial gain is wrong because it's not. That was definitely on our radar when we were looking at it. But it really, from my perspective, needs to be mission focused. And so if you're entering the cannabis space, you really have to, for us, it was a passion for saying yes to our members and not turning them away. And so we dug in, we figured out the cannabis industry, we figured out 
the risks associated with, and we figured out how to offer a really wide array of, of product offerings. But being mission focused is really key. And I think Frankenmuth is a good example of a success story where sure that the financial benefits are there, sure the deposit influx is there, but it was done with compliance in mind and it was done with the user experience in mind. And so our first couple months, we monitored the program on a monthly basis, the financials and other KPIs and things like that. To this day, I mean, I'm, I'm no longer there, but the success of the program is measured by, are we treating these businesses as normal as we can? And the rest is going to come. I think that's a general business practice as you treat people right. You kind of have to worry about the rest of the stuff. Everything else is going to fill in around it. And so Frankie's goal from the top, treat the businesses as normal as possible. Treat them with that Frankenmuth touch or whatever, whatever credit you're at. Treat them with that special membership touch that you have. And the rest will kind of fall in around. If you go into it with solely financial goals, I think it becomes clear and evident. So I think a good advice and good strategy is to be mission focused, find out what that mission is, and that'll drive you through a lot of it. Yeah, that's great. Mission focused, do the right thing, serve your members. All seems like noble reasons to try and bridge the gap and provide this service. So that's great. So let's pivot to digital assets, which is what you're doing now at Strategic Resource Management. So just when I say digital assets, that might mean different things to different people. So when I say that, what do you mean by the term digital assets? Yeah, first of all, let's pivot from high risk to high risk, right? (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. The NCOA examiner journey just gets more and more interesting here. So digital assets, I actually, I mean, this is something that you mentioned on some of your other podcasts too, is just trying to get to the definition of something. And so you go to dictionary.com or or you Google it, or you ask chat GBT, what does this mean? And digital assets is not something where you're going to get a consistent answer. And it makes it tough to have a conversation around something when the definition is so different. So I have a couple here. IRS defines it. Any digital representation of value which is recorded on a cryptographically secured distributed ledger or any similar technology specified by the secretary, and they include examples of convertible virtual currency, cryptocurrency, stable coins, and then NFTs, non-fungible tokens. So that seems like an okay definition. Well, then we go to National Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST, and they just say any asset that is purely digital or is a digital representation of a physical asset. So, well, I like that one even more. There's less caveats to it, and it's pretty streamlined. And then the number one search we search is up is going to be Investopedia. And they say, well, anything that's created and stored digitally, it's identifiable and discoverable and provides value. Well, so now we're getting down to literally just breaking apart the two words, digital, which is it's in digital form, it's asset, so it has value. And then the NASDAQ says, well, anything that exists in digital form, it comes with a distinct usage rate. So the point is, it's really tough to narrow in on this. And we have the movement of changing the branding of crypto, which got a bad name because of FTX and some of those other things, and trying to rebrand that as digital assets and put it into that bucket and use them as synonymous terms, which they're not because digital assets, I mean, in its truest form is probably a combination of all of these, all of these definitions. But typically when I talk about it, it does have to do with cryptocurrency, stable coins, NFTs, tokenization, different things like that, that we generally put into that bucket is typically what I'm referring to, but it's tough to get a definition for sure. Got it. Yeah. Well, I think about the IRS, they probably have some level of deeper precisions because it all comes down to collecting the tax, right? So that's it. If, if they were vague, someone <laughs> could make the argument that it wasn't taxable, I guess. I don't know. I thought about saying 
I go, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. But I think SEC Chairman Gensler talked, uses that. I don't I don't want to associate with, with right, that. Right, right, yeah. That's, that's like safety and soundness, right? I know yeah, that's, I that's it. That's it. Uh, that's a whole other podcast. Yes, I, think it is. Oh, I, I think I've got one on that. So we talked about the opportunities and benefits of cannabis banking. What are the opportunities and benefits for credit unions uh, diving into digital asset services in their offerings for their credit unions? And then a follow-up to that, how can digital assets enhance the value proposition for credit unions and their members? Yeah, I think the credit union industry as a whole is in a really good spot right now. And obviously, kudos to the board, NCUA's board, for that, because they have been not sitting on the sidelines, especially Vice Chairman Hoffman. I'm not going to say he's been an advocate for this, but he's been an advocate for responsible innovation. I think he's very clear about saying, do it responsibly type stuff. And we've seen a lot of credit unions exploring in this space. And so whether it's QSO development, blockchain development, actual products that go out to the members, we've seen a lot of use cases coming out of this. And there's been actual guidance from NCUA around certain use cases. So there's buy, sell, hold guidance and different things like that. And credit's in a really good spot because it's a different tone on the banking side of things right now. And so if you're a credit union, now's the time to really be exploring this. Yeah, I would agree with you that NCUA has taken a more, I don't know if liberal is the term, but Hauptman and Harper and Hood all are for innovation. They want to make sure the risks are controlled. And the other banking regulators have a pretty draconian joint letter that came out on it, which sends the exact opposite signal. So I would agree with you that credit unions are better positioned right now to take advantage of this. There are risks tied to it. And quite frankly, I don't even know. I don't even know what those risks are. There's a quote, somebody says, I don't understand it. And I don't understand the people who understand it. So I'm I'm kind of in that category of still trying to understand. Yeah, that's (laughs) an oldie, but a goodie. So I get that. I get that. But I think the board is wanting credit unions to have the flexibility. And you mentioned blockchain, which is, and there seems to be a bit of a pivot during the FTX and the crypto winner or whatever you wanted to call it of last year. There was a lot more discussion about blockchain and what that can bring to financial institutions and to the world of banking moving forward. So that'll be interesting to watch. So the landscape is changing rapidly on this whole topic. What any advice for how credit unions can not get destroyed by that and stay ahead of that curve? Yeah, I would say that's the million dollar question, but I don't want to put a dollar dollar amount on it. That that seems very FTX-like to to say it's the million dollar question. But I've grown to say that there's two types of credit unions. There's the ones who innovate and create use cases and businesses from those. And then there's the other credit unions that buy from them. (laughs) I think on the innovation side, that's typically true. You have the ones who are very progressive, they'll build, they'll experiment, and then they'll end up creating stuff and selling it to the others. I think that's a business model that works fine. At SRM, we're involved in several projects within the industry that could really change the course of business for credit unions. But for credit, whether it's actually getting involved in a project or just getting educated, I think credit union executives really need to stay up to date on this stuff. And we're constantly conducting board and executive training, which is essential for any credit union right now. And this was something that I found to be really true, both as an examiner and then working on the inside, was that executives wear many hats within a credit union. It's not that you have one sole job and that's all that you do. Everybody wears different hats and you you don't even take one off, you stack another one on top of it. 
and you do your job. And so having a person solely dedicated to staying up to speed with both the technology, which I think is, if that was just the purpose of a job, I think somebody could stay up on the technology, but then to put it in the practical side of things and and develop industry use cases. So I think staying up to speed on both of those, and then the projects that are in process as well, I think that's just impossible. So that's where SRM really comes in. We help it fill that void. And we allow credit union leaders to actually do what they do best, which is lead, implement some of that innovation in the space. That's great. And you talk about board training and staying up to speed on it. It's clearly, I I joked about this being an area that I don't understand as much as I would like to, but the younger members, they're embracing it. Even after the last challenges of the last year, it's part of their normal. So making Mm -hmm. it part of the credit union's normal so that you can keep those young members or get more young members seems like a good part of the mission. If you're going back to the mission on cannabis banking, the mission of being able to serve people because this isn't going away, I don't believe. And so thinking about making sure the boards understand what this means and how it might be able to help makes a lot of sense. So your organization, credit unions can partner with your organizations, but as far as specific strategies or other partnerships that credit unions can leverage to enhance their abilities to make digital asset offerings to help them keep those members and provide that competitive advantage. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. So we're seeing several strategies that are either currently deployed or are in project stages are getting ready to be deployed. I think the one that typically comes to mind when someone thinks of digital assets is the buy, sell, hold crypto option, where you go through your credit union, you can buy Bitcoin, you can transfer funds to your crypto account all within the same app and buy Bitcoin. It's all closed loop. And so you're already doing your KYC and all your BSA stuff on your member. They're going out purchasing the Bitcoin. It stays within the credit union's network or not network, but ecosystem. So that's typically what people think of when we talk about digital asset solutions. So we have vendors that we represent that offer this as a standalone option. And we're also seeing a big move towards offering that offering in combination with other offerings. And so whether it's self-directed or robo-advising investment solutions, one of the things that we're seeing, I think the industry is picking up on, that a lot of these large wealth management firms typically will have, say, maybe 1% to 3% and your top 1% to 3% of your membership at your credit union under their in their assets under management. Well, that leaves... 97 to 99% of your members without an option through your credit union. That's not the case everywhere, but what we're seeing that more often than not, that is the case. And so with some of these self-directed and robo-advising solutions, like the Robinhoods, where your members are sending their funds, probably quite often, we're seeing that credit unions can do this themselves. And so we're seeing the crypto option as a standalone. We're also seeing it combined with one of these where exactly to what you're saying, meet your members where they are and offer them those solutions, whether it's the younger generations or whoever at your credit union that really need these types of solutions. So we're seeing that. We're also seeing outside of that, we're seeing development on the blockchain side of things. And we're seeing some really good use cases come to the surface. I think for a while, the space, at least my perception of it, was it was a solution looking for a problem. And now I think there's problems within a credit union chain or whatever logistics where you can say, well, this is a great spot for some distributed ledger technology implementation. Um, The tokenization of real world assets is going to be a big thing. We're starting to see some actual real NFT use cases, not just an art thing selling for millions of dollars. We're actually seeing 
which don't get me wrong, art has value, but <laughs> at a financial institution, actually having some um, real value for a credit union. I think the most important thing is that credit unions explore what their member needs are, whether or not it's on the digital asset side of things or cannabis banking, just understanding your membership and making sure that you're constantly meeting them where they're at with new solutions to so that they can use you as their trusted institution. You're talking about the member side of it. We talked a little bit about training the board. You don't necessarily have to train the members, but so there are members that are going to come to a credit union and say, hey, I want to do this. And then there's members who are going to come to the credit union saying, hey, do I want to do this? So as it relates to educating members about digital assets, any thoughts relative to what credit unions can do relative to educating members on this important topic? Yeah, I think we're going to see a shift very similar that we saw on the cannabis banking side where just having a prohibition and policy isn't going to cut it anymore because you're going to have membership that's involved in cannabis and you need procedures and policies outlining what you're going to do when that arises. So just saying no isn't going to be acceptable anymore. And so I think this is also something that's going to be tough to ignore, even if a credit union says we're not going to offer solutions in this space, which I think is totally a fine takeaway. I still think the board and executives need to be educated on this constantly. But I think membership education is going to be important as well, because if your members aren't getting exposed to it from you, they are getting exposed to it somewhere and you're supposed to be their trusted source. And so even those credit unions who aren't going into the space from a product perspective, we're still helping credit unions from an education perspective for the membership, whether it's an FAQ on their website about scams or just what is this, and then various articles and newsletters and things like that that you can send out to your membership. Again, just to keep them educated, again, even if you're not going to launch a product, saying no isn't going to be a viable solution and you should be educating your members. Yeah, you know, when you framed it up like that, there's a point in time credit unions didn't have shared wraps. There's a point in time most credit (laughs) unions didn't do real estate loans, right? It was signature loans and car loans. So the world changes and you either change with it or merge. That's it. That's it. So ultimately, I think it's important to educate. It's important to consider all these things. So, Josh, is there a question I should have asked you about either of these topics or something else that I didn't? No, this was a lot of fun to be a part of, and it's a privilege to be on here. I would love to trade examiner stories with you someday. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds good. I don't think this is the right. (laughs) We'll do that off the record and without recordings. (laughs) There we go. Uh, That's great. And that's a good place to end. So if one of my listeners would like to reach out to you, how would they best do that? Yep. They can find me on LinkedIn. My name is Joshua Herman. Happy to answer any questions or collaborate with anybody out there, but definitely go and hit the subscribe button to Mark's podcast. I have, and I listen to them when they drop and they're extremely educational and informative. So again, thank you for having me on here, Mark. You got it, Josh. My pleasure. Great to connect with you again. And we'll chat down the road. And listeners, I want to thank you for your time. This is Mark Treichel signing off with Flying Colors. Thank you for joining us on this episode of With Flying Colors. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app to hear future episodes where subject matter experts of all varieties will provide tips on how to achieve success with NCUA. If you would like to learn more about how we assist credit unions, check out our services at marktreichel.com. 